For this, our 10th season, we will focus on telling true stories about the men and women we have come to know over 28 years of recovery. Each episode will tell the story of what life was like as an addicted or alcoholic person, what happened to wake that person up, and what is life like today. Not all stories are ones of success. Some of our friends didn't make it as they relapsed and so far have not come in from the cold. Some died in circumstances that had nothing to do with their disease. Others had a rough start, but they persevered and now enjoy a full and productive life. Some are old guys like me, and others are relative youngsters who serve as great examples to other younger addicts. Our stories describe addicts and alcoholics of many different cultures, a range of socioeconomic status, different generations, gender types, and sexual preferences, if they're relevant to their story. I like to say that addiction and alcoholism are equal opportunity predators. They don't discriminate. And you will see how the stories we share about our friends will prove the truth of that statement. Episode 7, Season 10. Roy, A Life of Quiet Desperation. It was Henry David Thoreau who said that some men lead lives of quiet desperation. And I say two things about that. One... I lived that kind of life as I alternated between panic, chaos, and desperation amid, in fact, learned that my desperation was the gift that got me sober. Two, my friend Roy, who who I had not seen or heard from in about 20 years, did lead that kind of life after the disease got a hold of him. And apparently, up to the point he left my life, it, it never let go. It never let him go. I grew up with Roy in southern Ontario, Canada, about two hours south of Toronto and the same distance from Niagara Falls, Buffalo, New York. He lived in the small town that I lived near, about five minutes' drive from our family farm. I worked for my dad, who, by the way, was the coolest dad in the whole world, all the time from the age of 12, for sure, and maybe younger since there was always something to be done on the farm, even an errand to run or vegetables to pick for lunch or something like that when you're younger. Roy was very shy with other people, clumsy as hell with girls, but he was my loyal friend and that was it. Done. A friend is a friend. So long as my friend was kind and honest, he stayed my friend. No games or lies or deceits, promises made or kept. He would come out to the field while I ran the tractor back and forth, usually cultivating rows of tobacco and sometimes plowing, which is harder than it looks, to do it right, or disking or harrowing. There was always enough room on whatever tractor I was using for Roy to have a seat or lean on something and talk about whatever was on for that evening. Lake Erie and the beaches were only about 15 minutes away. It's a great place to grow up. We grew our own marijuana that started with seeds I had acquired in Detroit where I knew a guy who knew a guy. The seeds were just part of a one kilo buy that I made and brought over the border, yes I did, to sell in Toronto and maybe keep a few ounces for ourselves. Ounces were called lids and maybe they still are. I wouldn't know. Roy really got into the pot much more so than me at the time. It was really nasty, stinky Mary Jane, but it did the job. It'd get you high. Roy ended up attending UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles, while I entered Boston University at the other end of the country. We were both in the same school year, but didn't attend the same high school. 
he had a great sense of adventure. He bought a brand new 650cc BSA, which was really a Triumph under another name. Beautiful red motorcycle. He rode all the way from home, our hometown, just south of Toronto, to Los Angeles and camped out on the way. That was in the late summer of 1964, I believe. Back in the day, you had to pay for a long-distance call and only use the phone for essential business or personal business. So he called to tell me that he was riding his bike cross-country to pick me up at Boston, in Boston, from where we would ride in Montreal for the World's Fair. And this was in June, just as the semester was ending. So he rode all the way. He rode all the way from Los Angeles to Boston. He smoked all the way and didn't die on the way and made it to Boston, by the way. We smoked a lot and drank some weak American brew and ended up riding me on the back of the bike straight north toward Quebec through the state of Vermont. On the way up, a long climb up a hill on the expressway, the bike just blew up. By that I mean the motor gave out a bang and it just stopped running. And it didn't, we weren't hurt. It didn't tip over or anything, it just stopped running. What the heck? We guided the bike down in an embankment out of sight of the road, and we had our stuff with us, too. So we hid that, and then we walked to Bell's Falls, which wasn't very far from, from the point at which we had had to leave our bike. I think we were already so high it kind of didn't matter. We talked to the garage owner to load up the bike on his truck and bring it back to his shop and leave it there for a price and a promise with the intention of bringing the bike back to fix uh, bring it back home to Ontario to fix it. Now, this is about 500 miles from our hometown. We rolled another number, another joint, had, had a couple of tokes, and finally concluded we were hungry and found a diner where we had a huge breakfast and met two lovelies about our age, oh, maybe a little bit older. They looked like our type of ladies, and we asked them if they could drive us west toward New York State, where we might connect with a major highway so that we could hitchhike home. We lit up our goods and got high in the car with the ladies. The driver got completely lost, and we, but we did find our way 30 more miles west toward home. The ladies left us at a bar where we got good and drunk again and found a guy who was willing to drive us another distance west. The driver was completely wasted, and we had to close our eyes rounding steep bends in the hills of upstate New York. We could not believe this car didn't fly off the road. Big old Buick. So we smoked, drank, and hitchhiked our way home, and it only took us about 24 hours. Roy went back to Vermont on his own with a truck, picked up his BSA, and took it back to discover that both pistons had cracked under the heat and pressure. But he knew how to fix things. Roy never went back to UCLA while I did end up graduating from Boston University in the turbulent, turbulent year of 1968. Every time I saw him from the time of our adventure, he was further down the chute. LSD was his latest thing, and if he wanted, I just gave him some better quality marijuana. It seemed that he went down much faster than did I. I was just a matter of his speed, I think. He lost all ambition, stopped coming around, lost interest in jazz, which he taught, taught me to like, stopped playing his saxophone in the local jazz club, and just faded from the scene. He was a true introvert. I was much more outgoing, perhaps not a true extrovert, but we were very different that way.
That's what made us a perfect pair. Plus, it helped that he was way more intelligent than, than was I. He went on his way down the hill. Years later, I ran into him at the Norfolk County Fair. I'm talking many years later, maybe 20. I had, at that point, been sober about 10 years, and he looked like a broken man. My brother knew him, too. Roy, at that point, when we saw him, he was walking with a cane. He was stooped over, face bloated almost beyond recognition. He did remember me and our adventures together. He asked me how I was doing, and I did tell him that I was 10 years clean and sober, and he said something that almost broke my heart. Wish I could do that, that's what he said. He wasn't working, hadn't in years, lived off a disability pension for what I don't know, and I didn't ask. There was no life to the man. It was over, but he still had a chance. I told him about Holmes House, a local rehab. He said he had tried that, and it couldn't stand it. No way was he going back. We traded phone numbers, and that was the last time I saw or spoke to him. Ah, pity that the mind can grasp what the heart finds slow to learn, is what Edna St. Vincent Millay said. Good old Roy, his heart did not learn the truth. I judge him not, though, for this is the immense lifelong power of the disease to destroy a perfectly good life. What did we learn from the story of Roy? We learned that, one, what starts out as innocent friendship can morph gradually into a using and drinking companionship. Two, Roy had no clue as to what his life was becoming. The desire to smoke weed and drink alcohol overtook his ambition to finish his studies at UCLA, of all places, a well-known university. Three, that seemed to be the real signal that his life was taking the wrong turn. While I went forward for quite a while, he went backward, and our paths never really converged again. For the last time he was seen, Roy showed the dire effects of a lifelong habit of abusing drugs and alcohol. Five, he never did get it, and he paid the price. I ended up paying a price, but somehow the gods had a different destination in mind between the two of us. Our podcast is sponsored by SafeHouseRehab.com, a modern approach to recovery. To learn more, visit us at SafeHouseRehab.com.